Thank you, choir. Thank you, June. Even though it was written uh, at least twice before, in 1716 and 1724, Benjamin Franklin wrote in 1789, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. That's fairly accurate, isn't it? But death is an enemy that will eventually be defeated. Taxes could end at any time and have ended in different ways and places for as long as there have been taxes. So two of even the most reliable things in our culture will eventually cease. And while we feel the burden of Franklin's statement and we can shake our heads in resignation about how true it is, it still isn't absolute, is it? When he wrote that letter in 1789, I'm sure the Constitution itself did seem to promise permanency, but not so much anymore, which all tends to beg the question as we think about it, what is permanent? What is reliable? One of the hardest lessons we learn throughout our lives is that there isn't much that is. And there's even fewer people that are and Words, words don't really mean too much anymore, right? Gone are the days of a handshake carrying any weight. Is there anything that doesn't just appear permanent but is actually permanent? Is there anything that, or anyone that can genuinely be relied upon? The Apostle Peter knew something about that. He knew about the answer to that question when he quoted the prophet Isaiah in his first letter, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the believer's hope is, has been, and forever will be the word of God. His promise, that which is called the good news. If chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 of Second Peter taught us about the authority of God's word, chapter 2 this morning, those first 10 verses teach us about the reliability of God's word. For all that we will face, all that we really have is the immovable reliability of the word of our Lord. And that is more than enough. In light of the threat of false teachers, Peter wanted his readers to know that God knew how to do two things. He knew how to punish the ungodly in judgment and he knew how to rescue the godly from trials. The people of God can and must always rely on the Word of God. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from that Word this morning in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through the first part of verse 10. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloom and darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, 
making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, may this word penetrate the deepest places in our souls this morning where we still doubt and still question your promise. Teach us to lean on you, Father. Help me speak in the power of your Holy Spirit that Christ may be revealed, that we may believe in him, and may you enable all of us to listen I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated, everyone. Peter introduced the presence of false teachers threatening the faith of the church back in chapter 1, verse 16. If you remember when he recognized that some were accusing him of teaching or getting his teaching from cleverly devised myths. Well, now Peter turns his full attention on them and he's going to keep it there for the rest of the letter. The function of the word but in verse 1 is to bring attention to the fact that there are also false prophets in the church, right? In contrast with prophets who actually submitted to the authority of God's word in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, as there had always been among the people. There will always be those who will claim that prophecy does come from someone's own interpretation, that prophecy can be and is produced by the will of man, rather than being the content of God's revelation to us. There had been false prophets among God's people in Israel. There were false teachers there in Peter's time. They are among the people of God now, today. And it's extremely out of vogue to say this is true and this is false. We don't even need to beat that dead horse. We all know that. But that is particularly dangerous in the church. That, it, that now there's this kind of rejection of the idea that we can say to anyone, that's not right. right? That's, that's not popular. That's very difficult to do. So there will always be these among God's people. And notice what they do. They secretly, he says, secretly bring in destructive heresies, false doctrines. Later on we'll see the same kind of description of their strategy is given in Jude where Jude says of the false teachers, they have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in and they're unnoticed. Beloved, wicked agendas, false doctrine is never initially out in the open, according to the Word of God. What false teacher would be so foolish as to say, hey, just so you know, I'm selling lies. I'm a heretic. Right? They're not going to tell you that. They're not going to say that. Follow me because I'm a liar. Right? It's not... It's not going to happen. But destructive heresies that destroy people's faith are brought in secretly. Normally under the cover of something that seems legitimate or important or urgent. It's normally only later that the true agenda emerges from its cover and becomes mainstream. So what makes one of the things that makes destructive heresies, destructive teaching so dangerous and destructive is that they chip away at us until they're able to convince us they're true. They take time. They're not obvious. We want to notice here that Peter makes a distinction 
between false prophets that had arisen among the people of God in times past and false teachers. That, that broadens it, that generalizes it a little bit more that will be among us today. In other words, they may not always claim prophetic authority. They may not designate themselves as prophets or lift themselves up in that way. In other words, in our time, as we read that, we want to be recognizing the fact that you don't just fear the big names and the big platforms on TV. Sometimes, often, if this is true, false teaching isn't always on or, or isn't only on TV or in the bookstore. It's, it's among us. It can be among us in our own body. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says the false teachers were brought in secretly and slipped in, that's what he says, to spy out their freedom in Christ. In other words, they appeared to be one of their own, and it turns out they were destroying it from the inside out. False teachers don't necessarily hide what they teach all the time. They just cover up the ways in which what they teach disagrees with what has been once and for all delivered to the saints. Why do you think Joel Osteen smiles so much? Right? And many will follow their sensuality, he says. That's what he calls it. Many will follow their sensuality and believe it when they blaspheme the way of truth. Blasphemy isn't as easy to spot as we think it is. It it won't always look like that's what it is. And part of the reason, beloved, is that we often worry more about mice while lions are devouring. We get caught up in these little things, tangential things, which is just a breeding ground for false teaching to take root in the church. We don't normally think of that. When we don't stay on focus, it's not just a matter of the fellowship not being sweet. False teaching is a cancer that thrives in that environment. It's much more prevalent in the subtle little shifts than it is in big obvious things. Again, if it was obvious that it was false, it wouldn't be able to take root or have a much harder time anyway. And if we want to know here what the kind of specific false teaching Peter is talking about here, the issue in Asia Minor was that you had teachers denying that Jesus was going to powerfully return to judge the living and the dead. That's what they were saying. There's not going to be any second coming. God is not going to judge the living and the dead. That's a, that's a cleverly devised myth by Peter to keep you under control. And so now it's, it's, it's either festering enough that it's out or it's in full bloom for Peter. But what he indicates here, and we'll go on to describe in more detail in verses 11 through 18 next week, is that the root of false teaching is not that this other group of people had studied the Bible and came up with a different option. It it wasn't that. Notice what he says. He says the the root of false teaching is sensuality in verse 2. That's important. The root of false teaching here is sensuality. They are driven by greed in verse 3. So their teaching is the kind of teaching that always scratches the right itch in people. Tickles that perfect spot on our ears that is still driven by our passions. These are the kinds of false words that will exploit those remaining weaknesses in us. In Peter's audience, the false teachers knew that people still had fleshly desires, as we all do. So they tried to ruin this idea that you needed to keep believing the gospel in order to be ready for the return of Jesus. Just do what you want. Now, that's an easy sell. You know what? Don't worry about it. He, it there's nothing to be accountable for. He's not coming back. Just do what you want. That, 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 
Yeah, people will buy that. People will like that. The the false teachers didn't need other people to follow that. They weren't trying to build a new church. They wanted to excuse their own behavior. That's what was going on. It was sensual. It was greedy. False teaching thrives on the lusts of the flesh. Right? Most of what's in the Bible actually won't allow you to arrive at blasphemous conclusions. Alright? That's not what the Word of God is. But if you're, you're corrupting what's there by your own heart, you're going to come up with any number of things that you want to believe. You know, they, people want to be rich. Well, you can, you can capitalize on that and become very rich. Right? You can convince people that God wants them to be rich too. And if you can convince them of that, if you can convince them that to pay you to tell them how to do that, that's what they're going to do. People want perfect spouses, so I'll make them think all their desires and dreams are totally legitimate. And they have to be met. And then they'll keep buying my books. They want to, people want to be praised. They want to be important and thought highly of. So I'll make them think that God actually wants them to love themselves. That it's a good idea to love yourself and think highly of yourself in selfish ways, which is all that is. I'll convince them of this excuse to be self-absorbed that they have, to love themselves before they can love anyone else. Why do we believe that? Why would we assume that? That the key to loving others is to love yourself? The self is not the referent for how to love. Christ is the referent for how to love. You want to know how to love other people? Look away from yourself. Jesus assumes self-love. The whole Bible does. Love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about this on Wednesday nights. If people loved other people that much, as much as they love themselves, the world might be a little bit more of a peaceful place. And the new covenant, it's switched, isn't the referring is no longer to love your neighbor as yourself. Love as you have been loved. The referent to love well is always Christ. It is never the self. But if I tell you, you know what? That feeling you have, that other people don't love you as much as you think they should, which is why you think you need to love yourself more, that's right. Go with that. Go with that. Believe it. Drink it up. Yes, you, 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 more, more of you. Right? Of course people want that. Of course people will buy that. It's a, you're capitalizing on the most basic rebellion human beings have. Me. Not you, me. Right? I love me, therefore I can love you. That's, that's just one of the many. One of the many. Anything. Anything. That keeps us from finding our identity and hope in Christ alone for us in the gospel, in the gospel, blasphemes the way of truth, and it will destroy us. That's why it matters. It will destroy us. It will destroy us to look inside for the answers. Peter has extremely harsh words for people that sell a false gospel in the name of the true gospel in verse 3. Notice what he says there. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. God doesn't forget. And their destruction is not asleep. No, no, no. It's, it's wide awake. And it's coming for them. God will destroy false teachers. He owns them in verse 1. He's their master, and by their teaching, they're denying Him. But will God really take care of that, is the question. How, how do we know that God is going to address it? Do we have any evidence that He will keep this promise in verse 3 to destroy those who destroy His people with false words? Can we rely on that? That's why the Holy Spirit inspired the word for 
at the beginning of verse 4. Peter is saying in verses 4 through 10 that God has a track record when it comes to judgment. Let me read that little section one more time. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them Distinction, making them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, so if then, the Lord knows how to rescue and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Those verses are one long sentence in the Greek, letting us know that Peter wants, Peter meant for those three examples of judgment to stand together as evidence that God will do what he says in verse 3. They reveal that God's people will dwell, they'll always be dwelling in a world, we will always be in a world where false teaching and evil are present. And he is revealing in this text that God will never let it go. Ever. Peter is being very clear here as it regards to this specific false teaching. This is very clever. The false teachers are saying, where did anyone get the idea that God judges people? And Peter says, okay, look at these three times when God judged people. It's very clear. Before creation, in the ancient world, and on whole specific indecent cities when they've existed. God's been judging since before creation, Peter is saying. God didn't even spare the angels who rebelled against Him from judgment. Noah lived in the ancient world before the flood and God spared him and seven other people because water enveloped the earth in judgment. And He's going to remind them later here that the next time God does that, because there will be a next time, it will be through fire. Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the most horrible events that ever occurred, and it was an awful place. Lot had to try to protect the angels that God sent him from being overtaken uh, from by the lust and debauchery of the crowds before he rained down fire and sulfur on them and destroyed them all. God didn't spare angels, God didn't spare the ancient world, and God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's a point of reference here for the false teachers. False teachers and Peter's audience in the church this morning can't think for one second that the condemnation of false teachers is idle. That God is unaware of it or doesn't care or isn't going to address it. It's been on tap for a long time. Their destructive heresies that destroy God's people will bring about their destruction from God's hand. You see the use of the word will in this text. It's God's word. The reliability of God's Word is shown for two audiences in this text. Peter tells us the evidence points to the fact that God knows very well how to do two things. The first, He knows precisely how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows how to punish the ungodly, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. In verse 10, namely, that's false teachers. That's what they do. That's what's happening. Beloved, they give full weight to their own desires. They let what they want control what they believe and what they teach and how they interpret the Bible. 
Which means, given what Peter has told us already about what does have authority in the church, they despise the authority of God's written word that tells them the opposite of what they want to think. Notice that. What did Peter tell us in chapter 1 verse 4 was the root of corruption, the world's corruption, sinful desire. Peter is telling us here that what's going on in the false teachers is they have not escaped their sinful desire. Not because they don't take God's law seriously enough. Notice that's not what Peter says here. Because they're trying to loosen your behavior, buckle down on behavior. That's not what Peter says. So they haven't come to believe this because they've gotten lax on God's law or something. It's because they lack the knowledge of God's very great and precious promises for us in the Gospel. That's why they're teaching what is false. The quickest path then to false teaching and or succumbing to false teaching is to forget the promises for us in the Gospel every single time. (coughs) You see what Peter is doing again. Do you see how he's taking us to Jesus? So what's the second thing? that God knows how to do very well. In verse 9, He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God knows how to rescue us from the burdens and difficulties that characterize our lives, mainly because we trust our own desires. God knows how to rescue His people from their own prisons. Against the backdrop of guaranteed coming judgment that is fixed by God's Word, is the revelation here that it is just as fixed that the arms of God will wrap around us in a world and in a church that is corrupted by sinful desires. Noah was a herald of righteousness. How? By barking at the culture to change? No. That's not the kind of herald Noah was. He was a herald of righteousness by believing the word of the Lord about the flood. By his faith in God's promise that was displayed, how? In His actual building of the ark. By doing that, by believing God's Word in Hebrews 11.7, it says He condemned the world. That is, by believing nothing but the Word of God that saved Him, He displayed to the world that they were denying their only hope of salvation. The Word Noah believed condemned the rest of the world for not believing it. And God rescued righteous Lot. Righteous Lot. A righteous man who lived among the people of Sodom and Gomorrah day after day. A people Ezekiel the prophet tells us in chapter 16 of his book that God destroyed not just for their sexual deviancy, beloved, but for their neglect of the poor in the name of financial self-gratification. Lot was grieved by their actions as he lived among them tormented by what he saw and heard. So, this is important. Did Lot show that he was righteous by running out and condemning the people and barking at them for what they had done or doing or were doing? No. His righteousness was displayed in the fact that his only hope was God. It's important we realize what makes Lot righteous. Since we read here that he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. He was tormented over their lawless deeds. Is that what made Lot righteous? That he found his culture so foul and that somehow proved how morally pure and decent of a man he was? No. In fact, 
Peter's use of the word righteous here is deliberately inflammatory if we know the Bible. If Peter wasn't so clear about the gospel and what makes a person righteous, you would think when he called Lot righteous, he didn't know his history at all. Those two messengers, the angels, if you know the story that came to rescue Lot and his family from the city before God destroyed it, remember the men of the city were so foul that they gathered in mass at Lot's house, banged on the door for Lot to let those men come out that they may know them. Okay? They didn't want to know their names. That's disgusting is what that is. So what was righteous Lot? What was righteous Lot's response in Genesis 19, 7 and 8? Yeah, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Righteous Lot. How in the world do you call a father that would do that to his own daughters righteous? Do we get how deep salvation goes? Do we get how perfect the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our accounts actually is? It's an amazing thing. Righteous lot. Why? How? The redeeming and justifying work of Jesus Christ as the immovably reliable word of Almighty God actually does what it promises. It really does it. It really wipes away our sin and credits to our account the perfect, obedient righteousness of Jesus. To the degree that when Peter looked back over the history of the world, that perfect obedience of Jesus was laid down on top of the record of the faithful and credited to their account, so much so that men like Lot, from the perspective of what Jesus has accomplished, are called righteous. Lot wasn't righteous because he was morally pure. Lot was righteous because in spite of the wickedness and expediency that existed in his own heart, when the Word of God came, he still didn't look back at Sodom and Gomorrah. He went. He left. He got out of the city like God told him to. Even in the midst of his own sinfulness, he believed the Word of the Lord that he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah Right? His, his grief and torment were not a self-righteous evaluation of those around him. It was evidence that he knew things weren't right. That the world was not his home. So what makes Lot righteous? What preserved Lot from judgment? What preserves anybody from judgment in context? One thing, faith in Christ. Lot is righteous because God knows how to rescue the godly from trials, even the ones they get themselves into. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom long before that moment. Could anything be more hope-giving this morning than to realize it is not our moral perfection that qualifies us for preservation, but it is God imputing His Son's righteousness to our accounts. You see it. God picked two men as the example of how He preserves the godly, whose stories are not very glamorous or virtuous once you do some digging. Noah's wasn't either. 
So what is our hope then? What makes God call us righteous and godly? Because you don't want to be the other thing. What is anyone's hope this morning if false teachers will secretly creep in to deceive us and take our eyes off of Christ and blaspheme the way of truth? What is our hope then if the way of truth can be blasphemed by false teachers? What is our hope then if God judges the ungodly? Our hope is that as reliable as God is, to carry out His judgment, He is every bit as reliable to rescue those who put their faith in Him alone. That's our hope. That's our only hope. And it's the only one we will ever have. In verse 9, salvation is rescued. You see that? It's rescue. If you could rescue yourself, you don't need rescued. Something done to us, not by us. And do you know, by the way, do you know who would be a great person to talk to about how great of a Savior Jesus is and how when God promises to keep us, even if we can't get it right, that He'll do it? You know be a great guy to talk to about that? Peter. He denied the Master who was about to buy Him three times in a row in one night. But beloved, you and I do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He prays for us. Just like He prayed for Peter. And what did He pray for Peter that his faith would not fail. That's what he prayed for him. So that he would return again to the place where he belonged, close to Jesus. Jesus prayed for Peter's faith because Jesus knew that once Peter fell, Peter was not going to believe that he could come back. And Jesus wanted Peter to know, yes, you can come back. That's what Jesus prayed for. Peter's faith The presence of false teachers and the dangers of false teaching are there because of what Peter grounded all this in in chapter 1. That's what we have to realize. Why are there false teachers? Why? Is it because of bad seminaries? Well, they play a role in it, sure. Is it because of of mismanagement and mishandling of shepherding in local churches? Sure, that's a part of it. But what's the root of it? What's actually going on? Why are there false teachers? Why is it so prevalent? Why will they always be there? Because people refuse to fix their souls on the knowledge of God's promises in the gospel. And when that happens, what are they doing? They're refusing to partake of the divine nature. So they keep their old one. And they interpret the Bible with it. And they despise the authority of God's Word by changing it to suit their own desire. That's what rejecting or reducing the gospel does to our souls over time. It causes us to doubt everything about the truth of God's Word because the truth of God's Word is summed up in the gospel. That's what he established in 1 Peter. Why do false teachers succeed in drawing people away? Because people refuse to fix their souls on the knowledge of God's promises in the gospel and thereby refuse to partake of the divine nature, leaving themselves to the pole of their old nature, of sinful desire. The lies that oh, that the world spreads a better table than Jesus does. That's how false teaching takes root. It gets you to believe that. When we do not believe that God has already granted to us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of His promises which is how Peter starts out his letter. 
When we don't believe that, that we don't have everything we need that pertains to life and godliness in the promises of God for us in the gospel, when we don't believe that, we will buy from whoever promises us what we think God has withheld from us. False teachers are just those who don't believe God is enough and their teaching is shaped by that belief. But beloved, what is our hope? Again, what is our hope? That the promise of God in His Word is immovably reliable. It can always be depended on because it is always proven true without exception. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also are they than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, 7-11 And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And He is our Savior, beloved. Do you know what you and I can rely on without ever having to question it this morning? That a much greater feast awaits us at the table of Jesus than anything this world can spread on its own. Anything. The people of God can and must always rely on the Word of God. In light of the threat of false teachers, God wants His people to know these two things about Himself. He knows how to punish the ungodly in judgment. He didn't spare angels. He didn't spare the ancient world. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And He will especially not spare those who despise and reject His Word. But... God also wants His people to know that He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Even the ones we go through because false teachers will constantly be threatening our faith. He preserved Noah. He rescued Lot. Just like He will always rescue the godly. And now we know godly doesn't mean people without any blemishes. There aren't any of those. But those made righteous by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. June is going to come and play this morning. The front will be open. If in your heart you desire to know Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're more than welcome to come forward and pray. Or if you want to let us know that that's what you've done already, please do so. If you want to join our church, now is the time. You're more than welcome to come and let us know. But as we sing together, Consider the reliability of the word of the Lord over against anything else's potential reliability. And trust it and believe it this morning. And don't waver. He is able to make us stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is perfect. It is whole. Everything that we need is here. Father, it's not false teaching when we 
disagree with each other over secondary matters. It's not false teaching to question things or struggle with things or work through things. It's false teaching when it comes from a belief inside that what has been given to us in the Word is not enough to sustain us and provide for us or save us. Those are the kinds of things we need to be afraid of, mainly the things that question the sufficiency and reliability of Jesus Christ alone as our forgiveness and our righteousness. So, Father, protect us, all of us. Protect us from one another when we're personally going astray. Protect us from uh, the words that we hear all the time that might cause us to doubt you. Lord, our hope and our trust is not in each other. Our hope and our trust is in Christ. And Lord, that's the foundation of so much in your church. And so God be with us now. I pray, Lord, that your word that is a life-giving word would now bring the dead to life and enable them to come and believe in you. May you strengthen and give hope to your people with it, Father. Every word proves true. It is all good and righteous altogether and worth more than anything. And so, Father, I pray that we would look to Christ and Christ alone this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.